We have before us today a daunting text. A text that has stood before the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Some have been faithful to the call, and others have not. Some men who have been faithful, like Diedrich, not, not our Diedrich in the back, who's not talking yet, but he certainly is cute. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a man who, who's, who's not been lost in the annals of time because he stood up and he spoke against the evils and the atrocities of the Nazi regime. Because of this, on April 9th, 1945, two weeks before the concentration camp was liberated, on that cold morning, he was hung for his proclamation of truth. If we gaze upon our text this morning, that challenge lies before us. We see a man, John, whose boldness for the truth has cost him his life. And in this text, we're confronted with our own desires, our own limitations, and our own frailties. And when it costs you everything, do you have the willingness to make the sacrifices necessary for the truth? that in mind. Let's go to our text this morning. This morning it's Matthew chapter 14, starting verse 1 all the way down to verse 12. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist who was raised up from the dead. This is why all these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have him. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we, we, we pray that we would be good stewards of your word, God, not just this morning, but throughout the rest of our lives, God. I pray that we would see texts like this, and we would be challenged in God, and that we, in this confrontation between us and the world, God, that we would not shy away, God, but that we would show our allegiance to be to you and to you alone, God. 
And that cannot happen by your own strength. That certainly cannot happen by your own ingenuity or own will, God. But it is only by your spirit working through your word, God. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, God. We humbly come to you, God. On our knees, we come to your feet and we ask that you would make yourself known, God. We have none other but you. It is again and again and again to you and to you alone that we come. Amen. Kind of brief outline of where we're going to be going this morning on this sermon. The main idea that we're going to be working under, I'm sure you've already gathered it, is that we are to proclaim eternal truth regardless of the temporal consequences. Proclaim eternal truth regardless of the temporal consequences. You see this in verses 1 through 4. You see John, John the Baptist, his bold proclamation. Not surprisingly, right after that, verses 5 through 11, you see the response of the world. How does the world respond when it's confronted with truth? How does the world respond to you when, in love, yet with veracity you proclaim truth. How does the world respond? And then finally, at the end here, we're going to be looking at the glory that is awaiting the saints of God. What is this glory that is awaiting the saints of God? So with that in mind, let's go back to the text here and read verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And for months now, Adam and I have been preaching this very simple message. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. It's been coming up over and over and over throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And you see that every thought that you have and every institution and society is coming to conflict with this kingdom of heaven. And everything must give an account to it. So it's only inevitable that these two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man, come into conflict. The kingdom of heaven bringing forth its truth. The kingdom of man seeking to maintain its own footing in this world as the light is shining in it and quickening the darkness to go away. So, you see here the Herodian family that just typifies, typifies the kingdom of, of the earth. You, you see this whole family much throughout the New Testament. We're looking at Herod Antipas, called Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great, was one that was propped up by the Romans as the Greek Empire was, was crumbling away. The Romans propped him up to keep some peace and stability. He's the one, his father, Herod the Great, who sought to kill Jesus Christ when he was, when he was an infant. So you have the, the Massacre of Innocents, as it's called, in Bethlehem. You see that in chapter 2. It's quite the family tree here. So his father is uh, the one who was trying to kill Jesus Christ. 
You have Herod Antipas here who kills Jesus or kills John the Baptist. He's there later with Pontius Pilate, and they become friends at the trial of Jesus Christ. And his brother Philip is the one who is supposed to inherit the whole kingdom. But the old man, Herod the Great, changed it at the last minute, and it became quite evident that Philip, the half-brother, wasn't going to inherit the kingdom, but that Herod Antipas, who we see in our text, he's going to get half of it. So, what happens to the lady who marries the guy who thinks he's going to get all the kingdom? Well, it's a matter of time until her affections toward, towards Herod Antipas, who's going to get at least half of the kingdom, which is better than none, which her former husband was going to have. So here you have this Herodias, who she leaves one brother, Philip, and goes to another, and they continue the rest of their lives in this adulterous marriage. And this is the backdrop against which John is proclaiming this truth. And he is not compromising whatsoever. He just speaks it quite plainly and quite boldly. He says, it is not lawful for you to have her. He makes no concessions whatsoever. And this bold proclamation of John, this is not just a one-time event. We see him in the Jordan River proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right away, he's brought in the conflict with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious establishment. And now he's not only in conflict with the religious establishment, but now also the political establishment as well, as you see with Herod Antipas. And this is why he must be put in prison. He must be put in prison. Because the masses are following They love John the Baptist. And if John the Baptist begins to turn against Herod, well, then the people too might turn against Herod. And so John the Baptist, he must be put in prison for his bold proclamation of gospel truth. But this, this bold proclamation, it goes far beyond John the Baptist. Actually, it's quite, it's quite evident that it's everywhere. It is the hallmark of God's people. Imagine the boldness of Moses to go before the ruler of the known world and say, let my people go. You get nervous to talk to our neighbors and share the gospel. Imagine going before the ruler of this world saying, let my people go. Imagine being surrounded by King Ahab, whose wife you know hates you, and the priest of Baal. Imagine being surrounded by them and then calling down fire from heaven. That takes boldness. Here, here his words. He says, Answer me, Elijah does. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And the people saw it, and they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Does that happen apart from bold proclamation of truth? No, 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 it doesn't. So you see it with Moses, you see it with Elijah. And every time you see revival coming forth, in the right hand you have prayer, and in the left hand you have this bold proclamation of truth. In the right hand you have this God-word prayer, in the left hand you have this Christ-centered, 
biblical truth being boldly proclaimed, going out from the people of God. Look at the first movements as, as we see in Acts. Adam was just talking about this. What do you see? Well, in the right hand, you, you see that they have their hand, hands in prayer. All of these, chapter 1, all of these one accord were devoting themselves to, to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In the right hand, you have prayer. And then in the left hand, you have this proclamation of truth from men and women of God that is, they're entirely unconcerned about their station and their lot in life, but they are concerned about the truth of God and proclaiming that and that alone. And the Spirit is moving in them and it's compelling them. They can do no other. It's compelling them to share the truth that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And He died the death that we can't die because He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. But as Paul writes, for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Speak of his death and his, his resurrection, that we too can be dead to sin, but yet made alive together with Christ. And it goes forth, goes forth, this simple message, uncompromised, it goes forth. So, when Peter is at Pentecost, what is he talking about? What is the centrality of his message? This Jesus delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. That's in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 3, they're in the temple. What is he, what's his proclamation about? What's his message all about? Christ and Christ alone. But you denied the holy and righteous one, he says in the temple. And asked for a murderer, Barabbas, Barabbas, release it, Barabbas, a murderer to be granted you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Go down to verse 18 of chapter 3 and Acts. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ was suffering, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back to your sins, that your sins may be blotted out, and that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Go to Stephen. Before he's stoned. Christ in His kingdom. Christ in His kingdom. That is the rallying cry of the people. The people of God. Christ in His kingdom. Christ in His kingdom. So you, it's not just John the Baptist, it's not just Peter, but look at Paul. What does he preach? The boldness and simplicity, Paul says, but we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called by the care and the grace and the love of God, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. My friends, Christians, it's the movement of God as we look at that throughout history and we want to be a part of the movement of God here in Rochester. And the right hand is prayer and then the left hand is this bold proclamation of truth that you see typified in Christ and Christ alone 
that John the Baptist is also a good example. Tactfulness is not the mark of a movement of the Spirit of God, but boldness of men and women who commit themselves to prayer, foregoing sleep, foregoing everything else, find themselves banding together in prayer. And that's when they gather, and as they scatter throughout the city, they are marked by bold proclamation because they can do no other. They are compelled, compelled to do it, my friends. Quite frankly, we have no other choice. We're in this world still, and we see this conflict of the kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven that is at hand, and the kingdoms of this world. And don't be fooled. The kingdoms of this world are boldly proclaiming their version of truth as well, are they not? Enticing you with the flesh, weakening the resolve of your mind, and ultimately seeking to corrupt your heart and your soul. So friends, if you are a Christian, and if you know the truth, and if the Spirit is in you that was marked the ministry of Christ and was emboldening John the Baptist and fulfilled Peter and Paul, if that same Spirit is in you, the desire of your heart shall be nothing less than the bold proclamation of truth. Look at look again at John. We know so little about him. We know very, very little about him. He was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. But yet we know so little about his life. So the details that we do have are incredibly important. We see his whole life is proclaiming Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And not shying away against political rulers and authorities says, no, no, you, it is not lawful. It is not lawful for you to have it. How easy would it have been to him just make a little accommodation? He just didn't have to say anything and it would have been fine. Masses still would have followed him. But no, he pressed in. He pressed in and he pressed in. Tactfulness? Perhaps not. Truth? Certainly. Spirit of God? Yes. And you're seeing Christ face to face worshiping him now and forever. We don't need tactfulness when we have this. So for you, it's perhaps it's with your family. Perhaps it's your children or your parents or, or your neighbors. But whatever God has given you, whatever situation that Christ has placed you in, do not shrink back from your responsibility and this opportunity to show your allegiance to Christ and to His kingdom, to Christ and to His kingdom alone. Don't you want to see the Spirit of God move? Right? Don't you want to see it move? In, in your family or in your neighbors or in this city? Don't you want to see them be wholly devoted to God? How else is it going to happen, my friend? How else is it going to happen? You want to be a part of this great gospel movement. Be bold in your proclamation of truth. In the right hand is prayer, and the left hand is this bold proclamation of truth. Do not neglect it. It's uncomfortable. Yes, yes it is. 
and you show your allegiance to Christ and his kingdom every time you do. So then what, as we move on to this next section of verses, what then is your response to the world? What does the world think of this? We, we, we've seen the boldness of John, which is preeminently given to us in Christ. John is a good example of it. We see this boldness. How then does the world respond? Let's look at verses 5, 5 through 11 here. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of her... Uh, the daughter Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his gas, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. So here's here's John. And don't forget, he's in prison. Probably ten months or so he's in prison. And while he's in prison, for proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the one to whom he was pointing, Jesus Christ, he's out there feasting with his disciples. He's having a great time with tax collectors and sinners and short time, you know, Nicodemus and all of them. And there is John in his dungeon while his Messiah is feasting. And, and we know from Josephus, as best as we can tell, he's brought to this Herodian fortress of Machaerus. And it's one of those places when you're brought in, you know you're not coming back out. This dungeon is deep, deep down in there. And it would have been in the early spring, right before Passover, that Herod Antipas is having this political, this gathering of his political and military um, friends to have a feast for his birthday. And the evening wanes on, and the hours roll by, and the wine is having its effect on the crowd. And the place is lit with torches. And then the daughter of Herodias comes and dances in a way that only a daughter can when she's been emboldened by a degenerate mother. She dances before the crowd. And this act of shame is, of course, applauded and rewarded. What would she ask for? She begs of them to have a moment, and she, she goes back and she talks to her mother and there was little doubt as to what she would ask for. The head, the head of John the Baptist, the very one whose proclamation of truth had been a thorn in her side for these very years. And Herod Antipas, although he appreciated John, his hands were tied by pride. And his allegiance to men rather than his allegiance to God so he sent for the executioner to behead John in this fortress, in this prison. And John's head was brought on a platter as though it was a trophy to the daughter, Salome, who then gave it to her mother, Herodias. 
what a gruesome tale. What, what a gruesome tale. But unfortunately, it's the conclusion that we've come to expect. The seed of the serpent has always hated the seed of the woman. The darkness has always hated the light, for their deeds are being exposed by the light. And this fits quite well within the whole trajectory of Scripture. From Cain killing Abel to the beast in Revelation, God's people are beaten down, they're oppressed, they're marginalized, and they're oftentimes killed for their faith. We read in chapter 11 of Hebrews, as he's marking the, the, the faith of these great men and women being commended for their faith, he says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats so that they could be eaten by wild animals. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And it's at these times that you must ask yourself, how much do I want to be like Christ? How much do I want to be like Christ? Can your life be marked by absolute dependence upon God the Father? Can your life be marked by this empowering of the Holy Spirit as was the, Christ, the life of Christ? Can you have all of that and expect anything different? Christ's words are given to us in John. He says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, if they persecuted, that is, Jesus Christ, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Why do they do this? Because they do not know him who sent me. My friends, shall we expect anything less than the treatment that was given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Should we expect anything less? Remember, they, they crucified our Savior. They beheaded John the Baptist. They crucified Peter upside down. Paul was beheaded. In the first century, our brothers and sisters. Who is your family? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Remember? Our brothers and sisters. Burned alive to make lights for the gardens of the emperor so he could have his, his little gatherings. Our brothers and sisters, for centuries, billowing smoke rose from Europe as those who were faithful to God and to the Word proclaimed the truth were burned at the stake. But it's not, that hasn't ended, my friends. That hasn't ended. Right now, in northeast Nigeria, our Christians, our brothers and sisters, are being attacked for their faith by the Fulani. Al-Shabaab is pulling over buses and 
killing on the spot anyone who refuses to renounce Christ. In China, once again, they're ramping up imprisonment, the torture of Christians. Hindus in India are burning churches, burning homes, and oftentimes doing whatever they want without any retribution whatsoever from the government. These men and these women are brought great comfort in seeing the boldness of John the Baptist and seeing the reaction to the world and knowing that their reaction is a refining of their faith until they see Christ face to face. So if these words are not a comfort to you, my friends, if these words are not a comfort, I would say that you are too comfortable in your faith. Be like Jeremiah. You see Jeremiah there. He's in chapter 20. He's continuing to proclaim the truth, even though in the midst of persecution, they have him in stocks, and he's being held there right outside the temple. He's a man of God being held in stocks outside of the temple. Yet in the midst of this persecution, he is continued to he is compelled to spread the word of God. Read what he Baruch writes. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach in the derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him. I will not speak his name anymore. So he's, he's thinking, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to give up. It's too hard. It's too tough. Verse 9, chapter 20, Jeremiah. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I was wearying of holding it back, and I could not. My friends, remember, be bold in your proclamation. If the Spirit of God is in you, how can you hold it back? Are you so great that you're going to hold back the Spirit of God that is within you? Is that what you want? No, no, let us not be tactful. The right hand is prayer, and then the left hand is this bold proclamation of truth. That is the recipe to see a movement of God. That is the recipe to see revival come to this city. That is the recipe to see your sons and daughters become missionaries. Spread their blood, spill their blood, and others might hear the gospel. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful so then we have before us this glory that is awaiting the saints. To go back up to verse 10. He sent, Herod did, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Verse 12. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the glory of this upside-down kingdom. The least is the greatest. The first shall be last. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the glory of this upside-down kingdom that is awaiting God's people, that is awaiting the saints. What a privilege it is to give up all that we have, even our lives. What a privilege it is to give it all up for the sake of the gospel. And it is these men and these women of whom the world is not worthy. So if you want to see a movement of God, if you want to see a movement of gospel, give up everything that you have. Give up all of your thoughts, all of your time, all of your talents, your treasure. 
give up your whole life, even your life itself, for the sake of the gospel. Because what a joy, what a joy it is to be like Christ, even in his sufferings. And we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we, we can't do this apart from You, God. We cannot do this apart from You, God. And I pray that Your Spirit would richly dwell within us, God. That we would be able to boldly proclaim Your Son, Christ, and Christ crucified. God, is so easy. I pray that You would give us opportunity this, this week's and that we would show our allegiance to You and to You alone, God, that we would not shrink back, that we would not be fearful of those around us, God, that we would not care what our neighbors or co-workers, family think, but that our minds would be filled with thoughts of pleasing You and pleasing You alone, God. I pray that You would give us this boldness over this upcoming week, that Your Spirit would make alive those who are now spiritually dead, those from whom you have poured out your wrath on your Son, God, pray that they would be brought to repentance through the work of your Spirit through this body. Amen.